Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicNPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Kevin Spellman, Ph.D., who is Executive Vice President of the Research and Development Division at USANA Health Sciences. Today we will discuss the science of cellular communication. Kevin is a 29-year veteran of the natural products industry. Prior to that, he directed quality control and research and development for the largest manufacturer of liquid extracts in the United States. He is a past National Institute of Health postdoctoral fellow and a Marie Curie Research Fellow in the European Union and has published 27 scientific papers. He also advised the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine and provided expert testimony to the Maryland House of Delegates and the Maryland Senate. His past research includes molecular biology of the brain and ovarian cancer, as well as clinical investigations, immunological studies, and chemical analysis on multiple natural products. International research includes the analysis of nutrient levels in teenage girls in West Africa, working with children with neurological disorders in Central America, and researching phytochemicals to treat malaria in Paris. Kevin is also an adjunct assistant professor at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, an adjunct professor of botanical medicine at the National College of Natural Medicine, and a lecturer at the Maryland University of Integrative Health. Kevin, welcome. Elena, thank you so much for that warm introduction. Absolutely. Let's talk about what we mean when we talk about cellular communication. It seems very simple, but the body is a very complex environment, and our cells are diverse and many. Could you help us understand, are we talking about chemical or electrical communication or another kind of communication? What are we referring to? Well, excellent question, and you're obviously up on the issue considering the question you just asked. So for all of you listeners sitting in your car or sitting at home listening to this, your bodies right now are really active. Although you may be sitting and maybe just listening, you have a plethora of cellular communication going on. And so what we mean by that is that our cells actually talk to each other. And they do it, yes, they do it electro electrically, they do it electrochemically, uh, they do it chemically. And this communication is what keeps us going, is what keeps your, for example, something as simple as your heart uh, beating, something as simple as a neurological activity or in the brain where you can actually understand what's being said at the moment. But even finer functions than that, keeping the cells alive, keeping the cells uh, respiring, um, all of these things are based on the cells communicating with each other and internally within the systems inside a cell. What what do these communications involve? It must be, this is me imagining from the layman's perspective, everything from there's no danger, going back to our caveman era, to complex communications that involve all sorts of systems in working together. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, certainly in terms of the, the uh, there's no danger, we're, we're safe, which actually is, is probably one of the most important uh, um, awarenesses that a person can have because let's face it, if you don't feel safe in the universe, you're going to act very differently. Um, and to, to just opine on this a bit, uh, someone once asked Einstein, 
what the most important question you could ask in the universe was. And he said, is the universe a safe place? So we all have to feel safe in some, at some level and know that we're okay. And, and therefore, a, a relaxation follows from that where we can function, think outside of the box, get done what we need to do, uh, operate the car, uh, that sort of thing. So basic communication goes on in any given second. You've got uh, communication going on between neurons, between uh, uh, cardiac cells uh, in the heart, um, so that those functions can continue to happen, um, and not just haphazardly, but in a highly systematic, systematic and organized manner. Now, we're talking at a very basic level, if I understand this correctly, about communication that is taking place without your knowledge that is just sort of automated your body just does without you being consciously aware of it and communication that you are driving with your conscious mind by directing your body to do something like click on a mouse or look out the window is that right? That's right. So the thought to lift your hand and pick up your coffee cup is an example of, of a uh, Conscious, uh, dr consciously driven uh, cellular communication that goes on, and you would be amazed at the, n the number of signals that are sent to just do that. But there's finer, as you point out, there's finer um, functions as well, and those finer functions would include something like your cells uh, being able to renew themselves in some way, uh, gene expression uh, from DNA. Um, so that we can make enzymes and receptors which go on further to affect cellular communication. So all of these subtler aspects we're, we're unaware of and are actually very, very key in, in, in what I would call housekeeping. Um, the body has a lot of housekeeping where it needs to clean up and regenerate and renew and um, protect itself. Um, so all of these things are done uh, without our knowledge. When you talk about housekeeping, it makes me think of something that I have heard over the years and makes me really curious, and this may be something you can answer or not, but I'm going to try anyway. I understand that the body cells die off and new ones are built, for lack of a better word, every so often. And the the, go, the, the saying is that every seven years your entire body is rebuilt. Is there any truth to that? There is truth to that, and it depends on which system in the body we're talking about. For example, red blood cells uh, will last uh, over a month. Um, intestinal cells will last less than a week because of the harsh environment in there. But, but all of that is constantly renewed. And not only are the cells renewed, but the components inside the cells that make everything happen inside the cell are also renewed. So to give you an example of this, uh, there's all kinds of uh, what we call organelles inside the cell. Now think of or organelles as organs, just as you have organs, hearts, kidney, uh, uh, excuse me, heart, uh, kidneys, um, that sort of thing. Well, the cells have organs as well, but they're really tiny, so we call them organelles. So things like mitochondria, uh, which will become more important later in this conversation, 
uh, things like uh, the endoplasmic reticulum, um, things like uh, the DNA and uh, all the components that go with the DNA. All of these are systems unto themselves that make the cell operate um, uh, in sync with the environment it's in. Are these cellular communications that we're talking about today at the internal level of the cells, or are we talking cell-to-cell -cell only? Well, so when we get further into this conversation, I'm really going to focus on inside the cell rather than between cells, but um, both is, is constantly going on, both external communication, in other words, between the cells, and internal communication within the cells are constantly going on. And how does this communication take place? At a, I realize that this can be very complex, but at a very basic level, what communication system are the cells using? Is there one comprehensive one? How are these decisions made? Are there particular infrastructures that are involved? How can we sort of understand this communication? Because communication sounds like a really big, broad thing, but what, what does it mean at, at a cellular communication level? Well, it, it is a big, broad thing, and, and there's hundreds, if not thousands, of different processes that go on within the cell for communication. Some of those would involve enzymes, and, and you may remember from basic biology that enzymes uh, catalyze things. They, they change one molecule into something else. Uh, and so one molecule going in, molecule A going in becomes molecule B coming out of an enzyme. And then that molecule B may in itself carry a message. Um, other examples would be receptors. We have receptors not only outside on the external of the cell to sense and hear. Think of, think of them as uh, antenna. Uh, like an insect would use to sense the environment. So we have these t sorts of, of proteins sticking out of our, um, our cells, but we also have them internally inside the cell that will bind certain molecules. For example, molecule B that we just talked about that had been transformed by an enzyme may then go on in turn to bind some sort of receptor internally uh, in the cell, and then that will activate some sort of signaling process that will go on. So it's actually extraordinarily complicated. It's really what molecular biology is all about in, in, very, in so many ways. And it's uh, really what sta maintaining health or um, crashing into a disease state really are about is what's going on on this very finite molecular level. So the, the players are, are very often proteins. Um, for many years, we thought that's all, that, all the, the chemical compounds were that were active in terms of communication. But now we know there's other molecules as well. Lipids can be active in communication, and so can polysaccharides. In, in other words, a complex sugars uh, can also be uh, important in communication. What about something as basic as salt? Well, so now you now you get into an interesting area. So there's cellular communication, and that often goes on due to uh, internal, um, or what I'm going to call endogenous, endogenous meaning inside the body. In other words, so internal molecules that we produce inside the body. And we also have uh, molecules from outside our environment, 
I'll use the word exogenous, outside the environment. And those molecules can be signaling molecules also. Now, some of these signaling molecules, uh, in fact, I'd say a large variety that come from the, the external environment, the exogenous molecules, um, come from plants. And uh, so, you know, when your, mo when your mother or your grandmother told you to eat fruits and vegetables, basically, as a scientist, what I hear is, we really want your cellular communication to be good. So, so eat your fruits and vegetables because all those molecules in there um, that we're trying to get, not, not just the micronutrients, not just the vitamins and minerals, but the, the, the actual phytochemicals, plant compounds, phyto means plant. So those plant molecules, um, or biomolecules we'll often call them, are very, very key to you know, communication. Now, when you bring up something like sodium, so salt, uh, sodium chloride, there's many types of salts, but uh, sodium chloride is, is generally what we consume. Now, sodium, you can consider an important uh, nutrient, in fact. And so this is where we start to draw the line. Nutrients are very key to make the cellular um, processes operate, but phytochemicals, the plant compounds, are often what drive the signaling. But you have, this is a very key point, you have to have both micronutrients, the vitamins, the minerals, and the phytochemicals to make these processes, these signalings, these communications uh, go on. Where do hormones come in? Well, a great question. So hormones are very, very key. Um, and these are, generally speaking, from the endogenous environment, from inside the body. We produce these. And hormones are very, <clears throat> excuse me, hormones are very central to communication. They will make all kinds of processes happen that we need, for example, for development um, or for uh, renewing certain tissues, uh, such as uh, the uteral lining. Um, so hormones are, are central and key, and not, we think about hormones usually as sex hormones, but there's also other types of hormones, such as the glucocorticoids, uh, which are stress molecules, um, and they signal that we're under stress, and so it's going to change physiology. So in a situation like that, the signaling would be, you know, we were cleaning the closets out today, but there's seems like there's something not right, so stop cleaning and arm yourselves. Let's start protecting ourselves. There are nutrients, or even to go to a more basic level, there are then chemicals that we can produce within our bodies with even more basic elements, and then there are others that we can't produce. Do I have that right? That's exactly right. So, and, and I said it in a different way, but, but you said it in a, in a very nice, succinct way to be able to grasp it easily, and that is that we have the endogenous signaling molecules, in other words, made inside the body, and we have the exogenous uh, signaling molecules, and those come from outside the body. And then you talked about phytochemicals or compounds that we get from consumption of vegetable foods. Is that correct? That, that, that's right. And so an example of phytochemicals um, are the plant pigments, for example. In other words, what makes a plant um, yellow? Uh, what, what, why is squash yellow? Or 
um, berries. Why are uh, berries uh, purple or red or um, uh, darker even than purple? Um, so all of these molecules, these plant pigments, are very, very key, it turns out, in cellular communication for the body. So this is why berries have such a great reputation. If, if you're into the health uh, movement, you'll notice that berries have become very popular. Well, that plant pigment, they're called anthocyanins. They're a type of flavonoid in the, um, in the plant, which are protective for the plant. But for us, interestingly, they're also protective. They'll, they'll uh, start processes which are protective for us. What about the animal compounds that we consume? Where do they come into this whole complex environment? Excellent question. So if, if you look back into the evolution of humans, for the most part, now people will argue with this, but for the most part, a lot of the a lot of the molecules that we've consumed from food have come from plants. Now, that's not to say that humans didn't early humans didn't eat meats. They certainly did, uh, but the majority of our bulk, the majority of our volume of food, actually is plant-based. There's exceptions to that. The Maasai are famous for their blood soups, and we should remember, and this gets later on into communication, we should remember that these blood soups also had lots of twigs and leaves and barks and roots in them. Um, we also get to the, the Inuits, the Eskimos of uh, the Arctic, and we see that uh, you know their diet was predominantly made out of seafood. And, but even with the, with the fish that they uh, would consume, they would open up the, the stomachs of the fish and make a meal out of the algae that the fish were consuming. So they were still getting plant matter as well. Now, animal uh, substance, animal foods, do have uh, cellular communication molecules in them. Probably a good example, um, which will be, everybody will probably be familiar with, is the omega-3 fatty acids, the EPA and the DHA that are so popular today, um, for, which, by the way, we find in, in fish and, and meats that are raised in a particular way will we'll get uh, omega-3s as well. Um, but these turn out to be, and this is somewhat new in science, it's, uh, fat used to be considered uh, basically to be somewhat lame, that it didn't really have much of a purpose except to, for storage or protection or warmth. But it turns out that certain types of fat molecules, we, we call them fatty acids, can actually be highly um, uh, active in terms of stimulating uh, cellular communications. The omega-3s are, are one of those. Uh, another another example uh, would be alpha lipoic acid. Alpha lipoic acid is a very unique antioxidant in that it's both uh, lipid, lipophilic and uh, hydrophilic. In other words, it it's water loving as well as fat loving, and this is unusual for uh, a molecule. Either they're often they're either water loving, in other words, they'll dissolve in water, or they're uh, lipid loving and, and they'll dissolve in lipid. Um, but they usually don't do both, and alpha lipoic acid is, is unique that way and turns out to be a very, very key molecule in stimulating cellular communication. If we could go back for a second. If sure. plant compounds are phytochemicals, what do we call animal compounds? Is there a term? I, off the top of my head, I actually don't have an answer for that. Animal compounds... Um, there, there probably is a term, and I, I'm guessing I don't know it. Uh. 
I had just never heard it, and as we were discussing, I was listening to you describe all of these complex relationships between animals and plants inside. I thought, well, is is there a word to describe each one and then a word that describes the two of them combined? Because, for example, when you were talking about the Maasai warrior's blood soup, these are, I'm assuming, the ones from East Africa that you were talking That's about? That's right, yeah. That now you're not talking just about a slice of meat but you were saying that there were vegetables included in that blood soup. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's uh, exactly right. Uh, all kinds of plant parts, uh, and we could easily call them vegetables. You know, I guess, I guess the way to sum up the the name here in terms of the label are biomolecules. Molecules that are made by biological organisms we call biomolecules. And so these biomolecules that are coming from the outside would include both plant and uh, animal compounds. Okay, perfect. So we get these compounds from the outside and we blend them together in our own way as by processing them through our system and create the necessary nutrients that we need to keep our body running. Is that essentially the case? That's exactly right, and, and that's what we have done at USANA Health Sciences with our uh, multivitamin, uh, which we call cell essentials, is we've combined a lot of these key signaling molecules in with the, the micronutrients, in with the vitamins and the minerals, so that you've got a complete spectrum of not only do you have the basics to keep things running, the vitamins and minerals, but you've also got these signaling molecules uh, to make things happen, to, to activate key cellular processes. Say that again, if you would, Kevin. There's vitamins, there's minerals, and? And uh, key biomolecules, key molecules, phytochemicals, or some people will call phytochemicals phytonutrients, um, that activate signaling processes. So we look at it from the angle of we are nourishing with our vitamins and minerals, but we're also protecting and renewing with our phytochemicals or phytonutrients or biomolecules, whichever term you, you prefer to use. What would be an example of one of these biomolecules that you're referring to that are signaling the body in any particular way? Yeah, so um, there's, there's some key molecules that we have in there. Quercetin is one of them. Alpha-lipoic acid is, is another one of them. Uh, hesperidin is another one, a, a flavonoid from uh, citrus. Um, and so these molecules are key in activating certain processes. So, for example, uh, quercetin we know uh, activates um, a process called uh, uh, NRF2. And NRF2 is, is this molecule that when you act, uh, activate that molecule, what you get is a response from the body where it says, oh, I need to upregulate, I need to turn on my own protective system. For example, if you're exposed to cigarette smoke or pesticides from the environment or you're inhaling pollution, uh, which we do quite a lot of here in uh, where I live, um, all of these things can can cause free radical damage in the body. And so in this case, uh, many of these molecules that we've added have this protective effect, but not by being simple antioxidants, 
we've gone way beyond that. But by activating the body's process to turn on its own antioxidants, its endogenous antioxidants, the antioxidants that naturally occur inside the body. So this would be things like superoxide dismutase and catalase and glutathione peroxidase. All of these molecules um, are uh, protective, are antioxidants. And the great thing about that is it's not to throw antioxidants out, uh, you know, out of the out of the uh, process. Antioxidants can still be key, but a exogenous antioxidant when it act when it is uh, working as an antioxidant, it basically picks up an electron and is done for the day. So it it can affect one free radical, but our system that includes glutathione peroxidase and uh, catalase and superoxide dismutase. They can actually affect thousands of free radicals uh, in in seconds. So this is something that's actually really exciting: is to be able to activate the body's own machinery, its its own processes, is far more effective than just taking simple antioxidants. I think we need to go back to basics a little bit, for certainly for me to get my arms around these concepts, which are getting increasingly complex. You talked about three distinct ingredients, for lack of a better word, in mm -hmm. the nutritional products that you're selling or that you've developed. The vitamins, the minerals, and the biomolecules. Right. Starting at the beginning, vitamins. It sounds very basic, but it's actually not so easy, right? How do we define a vitamin? What is a vitamin? So a vitamin is a molecule that is necessary for life, but we don't produce. So you were asking earlier about, you know, hormones. We produce hormones, and so we, we don't have to get them from the environment. But we don't produce vitamins, and so we need to get those from the environment. And, and without those, life cannot be sustained. So these are critical for the proper functioning of our bodies. That's exactly right. And ordinarily, we should be able to source these from plants and animals that we consume. That's right. That's right. Except that we tend to live complex lives, busy schedules, not always have access to all of the sources for these plants and animals that provide the vitamins and minerals and biomolecules that we need. That's right. And, you know, this is a very, very important point. And um, I think that there's a huge misunderstanding in medical sciences about this because there's a belief in medical sciences that just by, by eating uh food, you're going to get all the nutrients you need to survive, and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, if you look at population studies, for example, about 90% of the population is deficient in vitamin D. Um, about 50% of the population is deficient in vitamin E. So there are lots of nutrients that we're not getting, especially when you're on the run. You know, I travel a lot, and so, uh, you know, you have to eat, and so sometimes the food I'm getting is not, and I'm really aware that it's not what I really, what my body really needs, so I definitely take a multivitamin to supplement. 
Um, you know, JAMA came out, Journal of American Medical Association came out in the 1980s and said that all a multivitamin does is give you expensive urine. Well, that has completely been turned on its head. Harvard just came out with a report, uh, their, their food pyramid, not the USDA's food pyramid, where in their food, food pyramid, they include a multivitamin because they recognize that, that, that humans are having a really hard time getting all the nutrients they need. In theory, we should be able to get the nutrients that we need, the vitamins, the minerals, the biomolecules to sustain us, but in practice, it doesn't work as readily as it should. That's exactly right, yeah. Okay, but now it gets more complicated because I was shocked to discover that not all vitamins like each other. So if you consume one kind of vitamin next to another kind of vitamin, they may prevent one vitamin nutrient may prevent the other one from being absorbed in the body. Would you tell us about that? So, and that's true, and you're going to find this just in foods in general. One food can block uptake of nutrients from another food, and and this is something, this is a finer science that we're, is still very much in its infancy in terms of understanding. One of the interesting things is when um, when vitamins and minerals, uh, mostly vitamins, can block each other, that's when they're isolated. And so what you'll see in foods, uh, and, and this, it, it, let me start over here. So when vitamins block each other, that's when they're isolated as individual ingredients in a, in a mixture of, of maybe a bunch of individual ingredients that are stuck together. In foods, we have a naturally occurring set of molecules that accompany a particular vitamin. And those other molecules have been shown in many cases to actually enhance the absorption of the vitamins, uh, a particular vitamin in a food. So what we really want to do is make our vitamins as close as possible to food. And some companies have, have really worked hard at this. And this is one of the things that we've done with, with the cell essentials is by adding these phytochemicals that would mimic, for example, the, the, um, the biomolecules you would get from a Mediterranean diet or from an Okinawan diet or um, from, from the French paradox. Um, all of these, all of these molecules become very key in not only activating signaling process, but, but also enhancing absorption. So this is something that we've looked at, and, and we believe that uh, with the addition of these phytochemicals from plants that we would naturally get when we're eating a diet, uh, a healthy diet, that that is a great benefit. Uh, so, so not only in the cell signaling piece, and it's funny that you went here because um, not a lot of people think this way, but um, this is something I spent a lot of time thinking about over the last 15 years. There is this concept of being able to enhance absorption, um, and we could call it pharmacokinetic potentiation, but this is uh, not fully recognized yet, but there's a lot of great research out there on it. I've got a folder on this topic that's got at least uh, 300 papers in it. So. Uh, you ask an excellent question, and it is an issue. And the way around it is to attempt to make your vitamins as much like food as you can. And how do you do that? 
by adding components, molecules that naturally occur in food. Doesn't that make the vitamins really big? It can make the vitamins big. I was seeking to exaggerate and say that in order to have all of these vitamins in one pill that mimicked food, it would have to be so big that you wouldn't be able to consume it. So I'm, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit more about how you manage to do all that, or is that a secret process, kind of like that? No, that's not a secret process at all. You, you bring up a great point. One pill... Uh, we don't believe is enough so, because these pills get huge and it, it meet the average consumer out there can't swallow uh, huge pills. So what we've done is we've, we've separated it down to four pills. Four pills a day? Uh, actually, four pills in the morning and then, and then uh, four pills uh, in the evening. So eight pills in a day. That's right. And that is designed to have the basic nutrients that the average adult human would need? Well, so, yes, it's designed to have the basic nutrients that, that a average human would need. And what we do is if you look at the recommended daily allowances, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that's not enough. For example, um, the RDA's recommended daily allowances come from studying disease processes. So for vitamin C at, at 60 milligrams, we have a situation where what that does is it prevents scurvy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're healthy. You're just at that line of preventing scurvy. So there is a body of evidence that supports higher doses, and so we tend to make sure that you get you go beyond the recommended daily allowances. And by scurvy, you mean the disease that we get if we don't have enough vitamin C that can actually lead to death. That's right. It can lead to death. Um, and a lot of people actually don't get enough vitamin C, and they get barely just enough to prevent scurvy. But that, does, that doesn't mean that there aren't processes going on that are still detrimental to the body just because we're preventing scurvy. So, uh, you know, Linus Pauling was a huge advocate of vitamin C, and although I think he went perhaps a, little, a bit too far because I think he was taking over 8 grams of vitamin C a day, um, I, I do think that he brought a lot of light to to a topic that needed to be done. This, the same goes with uh, you know things like um, magnesium. Uh, most people aren't getting enough magnesium in their diets, and magnesium operates in probably over a hundred different enzyme systems in the body, and so it's very very key and very critical. Um, and yet, you know, most people aren't getting enough. So what we do is we keep the pills small so that people can swallow them and, and break it into four in the morning and then four in the evening. Vitamin C, since we're talking about that particular one, mm -hmm. as I understand it, is volatile and dissipates very quickly. So if you cut into, for example, citrus, we all know that citrus are high in vitamin C or berries. The nutritional value, specifically the vitamin C content, dissipates very quickly, and if you heat something with vitamin C, it loses the vitamin C value. Am I understanding that correctly? You, you are, and, uh, but I wouldn't use the word volatile because with volatile, essentially what we're talking about in a chemical term is that it goes off into a gaseous stage, and so vitamin C doesn't do that. But it is delicate, and if it's exposed to uh, air or... Um, 
for long periods of time or uh, sunlight, you will change the molecule, and that's what you're talking about is changing that molecule or heat, for example, as you say. Um, and there's there's a number of nutrients like that, that that you want to be very careful about how you handle them. Thank you for clarifying and correcting me. How then do you handle vitamin C and the other delicate nutrients and compress them all into these eight pills that you take in a day without damaging or destroying the essential nutrient that is the reason you're taking it in the first place? So you bring up a a great topic here, and let me just start by saying that um, good manufacturing practices are very, very key in producing high-quality dietary supplements. Um, And so we've gone, at USANA Health Sciences, we've gone above and beyond, and we actually follow pharmaceutical good manufacturing practices. So what we do, we basically follow exactly the same processes that somebody making a drug, such as Merck or uh, GlaxoSmithKline, um, we follow those same processes, which means that not only do we test the raw ingredients coming in, make, making sure that they're okay and that they haven't gone off or have been changed, but we also test the uh, raw, raw ingredients after they go into a product and look at them again. So that's, uh, in my opinion, a very key step and a very necessary step. What is the source of these nutrients? I thought that vitamin C that we take when we buy a vitamin C supplement or a multivitamin came, here I was naively thinking, that it actually came from oranges or lemons or something, but they don't always come from food products, do they? They don't always come from food products. Vitamins can be uh, synthetically produced. Um, vitamins can come from a number of different places. And so that's probably a, an important issue to look at as well. Is there any kind of research to support the idea that consuming synthetically produced nutrients has the same effects as consuming naturally occurring nutrients? There is. Um, and... Well, it's, I'm going to try to explain this in a in a way that's um, simple. When you synthetically produce a molecule, you can get different versions of that molecule. We we talk about right-handed versus left-handed molecules or isomers. Um, it, the, the best way I can think about uh, explaining it is think think of a pair of gloves. You've got a right-handed glove and a left-handed glove. Molecules can actually be right-handed or left-handed. Now, when we go into a synthetic situation where we're producing uh, these some molecules, we'll get both the right-handed and the left-handed molecule. What's interesting is that in nature, you get only one. You don't get both, the right-handed and the left-handed. You get either the right-handed or the left-handed, but not both of them. And so vitamins very often, for example, vitamin E is a good example of this. Vitamin E very often will uh, is an isomer. It can have a, a left-handed and a right-handed version. And so this is what, if you look at a vitamin bottle, you'll see DL. This stands for dextro and levorotary. And this is basically a... Um, 
uh, a, a way of uh, assigning whether they're right-handed or left-handed molecules. So in a, vitamin, in a vitamin E supplement, when you see DL, you're getting a synthetic. You're getting both the right-handed and the left-handed. And it's been shown that the right-handed, if, if the if the if the uh, if, bi- if biomolecules, for example, if vitamin E that comes from a natural source uh, is, I think it's uh, a right-handed molecule. If it comes from um, a natural source, it's a right-handed molecule. But the left-handed molecule doesn't seem to have the same activity. So this is a you you bring up a very very key and crucial point, and this is why we're very careful about the ingredients we choose. Let's go back once again to the vitamin sphere with me. And you said something that caught my attention. 90% of us walking about every day looking healthy are deficient in vitamin D. Did I catch that statistic correctly? You you did catch that statistic correctly, yes. Uh, but this vitamin doesn't come necessarily from food, our main source of vitamin D is from the sun. Is that right? Well, the sun and um, certain types of, of uh, seafood products can also be a, a good source. Uh, but yeah, the sun is key. And you know what you see is this fear of the sun is what I like to call it these days, um, because everybody's afraid of getting skin cancer. And you know that's a legitimate concern. But we've gone overboard by putting on, uh, slathering ourselves up with huge amounts of sunscreen. What we're doing is blocking the production of vitamin D. So the ideal thing is to let yourself have sun for 15 or 20 minutes and then put on your sunscreen. Well, and it gets more complicated too, right? Because then your body produces the vitamin D as an oil over your skin and it has to be absorbed and it takes hours for your body to do that, how do you duplicate that or how do you make a synthetic that mimics that process? Um, I'm sorry, can you ask that question again? Of course. Since this is a vitamin that isn't necessarily generated from food, although there are food sources, right? but that the Part of the way that you acquire vitamin D is through this complex process of letting the sun shine on your skin and having your body produce the oil that is then absorbed into your body to produce the vitamin D. Right. How do you mimic that process and make it into a compound that you put into eight pills? So... um we use vitamin D3, which is the molecule that that we have in the uh, that is bioavailable for it's it's the it's the biomolecule D3. So when when we um, when we're making uh, vitamin D, the final product is vitamin D3, and so we use the same molecule. Now you bring up an excellent point, and that is that um, there are Provitamins or um, precursors to vitamins, and you've got D1 and you've got D2 and you've got D3, and that D1 and that D2 can actually be a precursor to vitamin D3 if if everything goes right. Hopefully, you get some vitamin D3 out of that. And so, rather than um, 
hoping that if everything goes right, we actually just use uh, uh, vitamin D3. Tell us about vitamin K. So vitamin K is, is an interesting one, and there's K1 and there's K2, vitamin K1 and vitamin K2. And vitamin K2 can often show up as something called MK4 or MK7. And one of the things that you'll see is that uh, there seems to be another, it's another controversial vitamin because with people that are on blood thinners, such as uh, warfarin, coumadin, um, the vitamin K is contraindicated. However, if you look at the reviews, the recent reviews on uh, vitamin D, excuse me, on, on vitamin K, what you'll find is that the people who are on those blood thinners do better if they have a consistent level of vitamin K in their system. It's a little bit insane. Remember what we talked about vitamin vitamins, the definition of vitamins? Yes. It, they're necessary for life, and we get them from outside, right? Yes. So I want to I want to focus on that necessary for life piece, because, in my opinion, as a medical scientist, it's insane to tell somebody to stop taking vitamin K. I understand the precautions, and there do need to be precautions. Don't get me wrong here. You don't want to just start taking large doses of vitamin K if you're on a blood thinner, but. What the studies have shown is that those people who have a consistent source of vitamin K and they stay consistent with that source and they're on warfarin, they do actually do better than those who end up vitamin K deficient because they stop eating anything with vitamin K, such as leafy greens. Well, that brings me to so many questions. But one of those questions is the concept that plants are by nature designed to protect themselves and they manufacture defensive chemicals so that the animals or in our case the humans that eat them don't eat a plant to death. So if you watch the animals, say for example on safari, you will notice that the giraffe only hangs out at a tree for a particular amount of time and then has to move on to another tree because the leaves in that first tree become unpleasant to eat and eventually poisonous, right? That's right. And so this happens to us humans as well. If we consume too much of a particular type of plant, it can become poisonous. Do I understand that correctly? Well, so let's take a step back. The giraffe eating directly from the plant, the plant's getting all kinds of cues that, oh, something's eating me. This isn't good. I need to protect myself. And so it will upregulate um, certain phytochemicals, certain biomolecules, as you say, that are protective. <clears throat> That's, that's all well and good. However, remember that we're not grazing on plants. We're not activating them to say, hey, something's wrong here. I, I better upregulate because this human is grazing on me. So for the most part, we're doing crops, right? And so crops are well, they're, 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 they're nurtured. They're, they're, they're babied. They're taken care of, right? They're, they're watered regularly and they're taken care of. And so they're not upregulating. Uh, a huge amount of these protective compounds, which in itself can be an issue 
because as you point out, some of these protective compounds can be uh, detrimental to to a giraffe's health. But I just want to point out that the flavonoids, uh, such as quercetin, such as these uh, uh, anthocyanins, this, this blue pigment in berries, are also protective compounds. And humans have been consuming those for so long that these protective compounds for the plant are actually very protective for us as well. There may have been a period in human development, if we go back uh, two to five million years, there may have been a period where flavonoids weren't so good for us, but certainly with time, what we found is that these, in fact, that what the data shows is that more flavonoids in your diet, the less cardiovascular disease, uh, the less stroke, and some of the newer data suggesting the less cancer as well. So you're absolutely right. We have to be careful on which plants we choose to eat. And what we're doing is we're not, we're not grazing off of uh, wild plants for the most part, you know, in the, in, on the savanna. We are eating crops. I read an article recently that said people eating regular food, not savanna food, were having or had the potential to become what would be the description, mildly poisoned. If they had too much of a particular nutrient, they could have reactions such as mild temporary memory loss and trembling of the extremities. I think they were referring mainly to fingers, but I'm not sure that it's specified. Have you heard of that? Theoretically, they're right, but you can find anything on the Internet these days. And what I would say is it's pretty rare that somebody is eating too much of a particular plant. The problem is not that people are eating too much plants. The problem is is that people are eating not enough plants in their diets. So while I completely agree that you can overdo it, we are underdoing it as a population in a huge way. We uh, we don't have enough servings of fruits, of fruits and vegetables in, in our diets. And if you look at the, uh, the suggestions from the USDA, they're suggesting five uh, servings a day at least of fruits and vegetables. Who do you know that actually gets that? So rather than scaring people that they shouldn't be eating plants, I think we really need to encourage people to eat plants. Plants are not our enemies. We have a five million year uh, evolutionary, co-evolutionary relationship with plants. And they really are health-giving in, in many, many ways. What about dairy? There's a lot of controversy about dairy. It's in some of the recommendations and it's been withdrawn from others. For example, such as Harvard, you used to see the little glass of milk on the charts and in some places it's gone. You ask some medical doctors and they will tell you that milk is for baby cows but not for humans. Where, where are you on your ideas on this and in terms of your sourcing for your vitamins? Uh, well, we don't use dairy as, as sourcing for our vitamins, um, but uh, th and this is strictly my opinion, and I want to make that clear. Um, I'm not a huge dairy fan. I agree that the only mammals uh, on the planet that eat, the only mammals that, that as adults eat dairy products are humans. 
And I can tell you from uh, a clinical perspective that I have had lots of acquaintances, friends, and uh, people come up to me at conferences and tell me that when they came off dairy, a lot their health changed. Um, now, I want to make it very clear that dairy is not dairy is not dairy. So milk, for example, I think uh, is potentially problematic for a lot of people. But when you get into yogurts and where you've got some, some uh, flora in there, you've got some... Um, probiotics in there, I think that that's actually probably a very different food than milk. Um, cheeses, certain cheeses as well, they have they have nice cultures in them, right? Nice uh, bacterial uh, growth in them that actually gives it a, a distinct flavor and metabolizes some of the compounds in the dairy. I think that's actually probably a different food uh, than, than milk as well. Uh, but, you know, it's controversial. And you've got the National Dairy Council saying one thing. You've got some research saying another. Um, I think this is a very controversial area. Let's go back to the big picture in terms of your overall needs in a day as an adult. One of the thoughts that comes to my mind, and this isn't specific to vitamins, but to anything that you're taking, such as medication, patent or otherwise, should the dosage be the same regardless of the size of the person taking it? Does it make sense that someone who weighs 100 pounds takes the same dosage than someone who weighs 300 pounds and someone who's 20 takes the same dosage as someone who's 70? There's, so you're getting into the science of what's called pathology, uh, which is the science of dosing. and. There, in my opinion, as a medical community, we have a long ways to go, and we have a lot to learn about proper dosing. Um, and you're right, one size, uh, one dose does not fit all. One size does not fit all when it comes to dosing. Um, and it gets more complicated than just size and age. It also comes down to genetics because we may have certain enzymes that can break down a drug at a very high rate, and someone else may have uh, a slight variation of that enzyme that doesn't break down the drug at a very high rate, and therefore it tends to linger in the body. And so this is this is an issue that uh, I think is very, very key, and there needs to be a lot more science done here. Tell us about the sourcing of the nutrients. Where exactly are the vitamins that most of us consume, and specifically in the case of your company, where do they come from? What country or countries are they sourced in? Well, it, de it depends on the nutrients. So we source from all over the world, and we work really, really hard at finding the best sources that are possibly available. Um, and we don't necessarily choose, you know, there's very cheap sources, and then there's more expensive sources. We're not driven by um, by cost on this, and that's something really important to remember. And that comes from our um, our founder, Dr. Myron Wentz, who was absolutely convinced that um, this was going to make a difference in human health because um, he saw it in his with his own eyes. He used to raise human uh, human cells. Uh, for some of the experiments he was doing in virology, 
and he found that when he gave them nutrients, they actually performed much, much better. So quality was always a very important issue for him, and so that has carried through the company since we started uh, back in uh, was it 92 or 93, 1992 as a company. So we source from all over the world, finding the best possible source we can get, um, and and like I said, we check our raw materials, and then we check the we check the materials again once they're in the product and before they go out the door. I have here a book that says that most of the most of the world supply of vitamin A, B12, and E comes from China, and 75% of vitamin D, and more than 80% of vitamin C. And it goes on to add more details as to the export, 150,000 to 200,000 tons of vitamins per year are being shipped out of China to the rest of the world. Is that still the case? Is that the case for you? Are most of your vitamins sourced from China? No, most of our vitamins are not sourced from China. Like I said, we will, we will look all over the globe to find the best possible source. And... Um, China at times has some high-quality stuff and at times doesn't have uh, stuff that meets our, our, our uh, specs, our specifications. And so we will, we will go uh, to the ends of the earth to find that. What would you say, for example, is the top country where you source your vitamin C, just as a random example? Um, off the top of my head, I actually don't know the answer to that, um, but I can find out for you. I know you have to go, so thank you, Kevin, for joining us from Salt Lake City, Utah. You're very, very welcome. Thank you, Elena. I hope uh, hope your day continues to go quite well. Thank you. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Kevin Spellman, Ph.D., who is Executive Vice President at USANA Research and Development, who discussed the science of cellular communication. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.